So there's all these locked doors. Did you catch that? Uh, Locked doors. People are uh, locked in uh, by choice in the first part of our gospel reading and then by force in the book of Acts. And Jesus has something to do with all the locks on these doors. He has the power to open them, to set us free from our fear, to set us free from uh, what our culture might want us to do. I'm excited to look at these Easter passages with you. Uh, We sing a song. I could have just kept singing that song all morning, the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus. Uh, It's been my West African brothers and sisters that have helped me to begin praying more um, confidently in the power of Jesus's name. Uh, I can just hear my uh, pastor colleague and elder brother Kareem saying, in the mighty name of Jesus, he ends all of his prayers. Uh, it's, it's had a big impact on me because when I've gone to places like West Africa, I've been in a prison. In fact, it was about 20 years ago that I visited uh, a West African prison and we were there and um, without getting into all the details, some of the video I, I took, um, I held my camera by my side because I was told I wasn't. That's pretty courageous of me to do that. Um, I don't know what would have happened if they had found out that I, would, I was doing that. But we heard a story uh, of, a, of a man who, he only needed uh, to pay the fee to be set free from the prison that he had been in for five years. This was one of the most, un, it was the most unpleasant human conditions I've ever observed with my own eyes. And, um, you know, we went on our tour and this West Texas kid kept trying to like speak the few French words I have. I'm on video actually saying, Monsieur, Monsieur, Monsieur. Um, I don't remember his name. Uh, I wish I did. But for 25 US dollars, uh, his fee was paid and he was set free. He walked out of prison that day. Um, Jesus has the power uh, to set us free from our fears, our doubts, our disbelief, our sin, our sorrow, our grief by saying the word. And he breaks through these locked doors where the disciples, these 11, 10 and then 11, have locked themselves in and he comes bearing the message, the gift of not just freedom, but total peace, total shalom to them. I've gotten way ahead of myself. Let me back up. What's in a name? Uh, every Eastertide, I feel that part of my responsibility at Church of the Resurrection is, is to get us to, to own our name. We've got a great name as a church. Uh, not like we're better than others, but this is a great name, Church of the Resurrection. Anybody else ever try to type that in to your phone and it says, Church If the Resurrection? It does that to me all the time. Um, You might not have given much thought to your own name or a church's name, but uh, I think it's really significant. And yet, like the early disciples, like these three women that we saw last week, we are prone to actually live a life that suggests we have a dead Messiah, a dead rabbi, a dead teacher, and we turn Christianity into moralism and forms and rituals and And instead of that, what we know is we have a risen Lord. We are Church of the Resurrection. It's a great name. Some churches have really bad names, and I love this. Some of you have seen a couple of these. Here's one. Look, most kids, I know they're not here now to enjoy this, think that church is boring. Even if the town is called boring, you you can't do this to yourself. 
Because look, we're the boring church. I mean, like there's a yawn in the middle of their name. Yeah, and then this, you already saw, Little Hope Baptist Church. It's the town. All of these are towns, all three of them. Little, Little Hope Baptist Church. I, I mean, somebody should have told them. You can't do that. Have you heard of the resurrection of Jesus? We, we have a little, little hope to offer, not much, just a little to help you along in your journey. This one's my favorite. It was given to me by Frank Green uh, a couple years back. Um, this is real. I thought it was fake. Church of Uncertain. Uh, I had to do some searching around to find out, really, this isn't real. When, when Frank first sent it to me, I thought, this is not real. It is real, and it is in the great state of Texas. Because there's a little community, a less than 200 people, in a township called Uncertain, Texas, and they didn't think to name their church something other than Church of the Uncertain, but I love it. I love it because it is exactly what the little small house church that was beginning to form after the resurrection with 10 apostles should have called themselves. That's exactly what they were. They were church of the uncertain. I know there's not an article here, but they were church of the uncertain. They were church of the doubtful. They were church of the fearful. They were afraid and they had locked the doors. I think it's fascinating that the 10 disciples, when you ask the question, where were they after they fled and betrayed Jesus? They are locked in, shut down, sheltering in place. And the, the gospel reading told us why. For fear of the Jews. We're next. We're next. They're going to come after us. We're next. And we don't have time to do this on Baptism Sunday, but if you hold up this fearful little community of disciples with what we just read in the book of Acts, you see something really changes. They go from being really fearful people, really fearful disciples, to being intrepid, fearless, risking their lives to talk about their Lord. How did that change happen? How does that change happen? Where we go from uncertain, fearful, to intrepid, confident, bold, at peace. The way that transition happens is you and I have to encounter the risen Lord in a personal way. And I want to tell you the good news is that you can't go and find him on your own. Like you can't figure it all out on your own. He's gonna come to you in the midst of your fear and your doubt and your uncertainty. He will come and find you. We didn't read it this morning, but just a little reminder, John chapter 20 is a really, the whole chapter sets us up to see that Mary, one of the disciples who's grave tending and sobbing and weeping, she doesn't know where Jesus is. Tell me where they put his body. She's looking for a dead Jesus. And while she thinks she's searching for him, Jesus already knows where she is. And he says to her, Mary, he calls her by name. Here's the first thing I want you to see, to go from uncertain to confident, from fearful to intrepid. You got to see that there's a risen Lord and he's personal and he's calling us by name. I have three names. I want you to spend some time this week, look, evaluate, study his pursuit of Mary the tenderness and time Jesus takes to pursue Mary in a very personal way. Then Thomas, which we'll look at right now, he, he pursues Thomas in a deeply personal way. And then Peter is next Sunday. 
Next Sunday, we'll get to the photo in a minute. You can leave it up there. It's a great, great photo of what's about to happen. He pursues Peter in a very personal way. He calls us by name, and any of you who have journeyed very long know that this is a really big deal, that we don't have a, not only do we not have a dead Messiah, we don't have a book of propositions that we're trying to just sort of tidy up, you know, in a moralistic way. We have a risen Lord that, that we walk with, that we know, that's very present to us, and he knows us by name. Uh, yesterday, when we celebrated and remembered the life of Marty Green, Frank, as her beloved husband, was able to say, our Lord, he knows the number of hairs on her head. He's called her home by name. That's it. Have you met the risen Lord personally? That will take you from full of doubt and full of suspicion and full of fear. And Thomas, by the way, at the beginning of this, he's not even with the 10. He is so lost and rudderless that he has isolated himself from his community, his brothers. Does that sound familiar to anyone over the last two years, getting really isolated? That's where Thomas is. And the risen Lord comes in a very personal way even though they had all fled, they had all fled, they had all betrayed him, Jesus pursues them. Do you see what a gracious Lord we have? They had all fled and Jesus keeps pursuing them. They had blown it and he shows up and says, I'm here, I've not gone anywhere. And I'm, I'm here with, with a message. I'm here with a gift. The risen Lord not only calls us by name, it's deeply personal, but he brings his peace to us. He brings his peace to us. See, by his wounds, we are healed. He says three different times here, peace I give to you, verse 19, verse 21, and then he repeats it again just for Thomas. He is not only a personal risen Lord who calls us by name, but he is a Lord that brings total shalom, total peace. And he knows our fears and our doubts. He knows how not at peace we know we are. He knows how hostile our hearts are. And this is where he pursues Thomas. It's, it's a fascinating thing worth, worth much reflection. Pay attention as you read this week, John 20, that Thomas has departed from the 10. They don't know where he is. We don't know why he's not with them, by the way. We don't get any commentary on why Thomas was not there, but he's not there. He's not with them. And the 10 get to meet the risen Lord. And it affects them so much that they say, we've got to go get Thomas. Isn't that beautiful? We've got to go get him. He thinks this is over. It's not over. And so they go and they get Thomas. And look, did you hear Thomas's response? He doesn't care that they think they've seen something. He is so locked in his fear and his doubt that he says, unless I get to touch him. He's very specific. He repeats it several times. Unless I get to put my finger right where it all happened, I will never believe. If you think that you live in an age that is uniquely skeptical, you are doing what we all do, which is sort of cultural chronological arrogance. You think we're the first ones to have doubt, to have suspicion, to be... Now, we are, we are in an age of skepticism. There's no doubt about that. I'm not, I'm not denying that, but we're not the first. Thomas walked with him. He doesn't believe it's true. There is not a stronger way that for he could respond than to say, I'll never believe it. I don't care what you tend apostles say to me. I'm not going to believe it. Well, it's like Jesus knew it. 
It's like Jesus knows our hearts. It's like the thing we say at the beginning of every service, unto you all hearts are open, all desires are known. You know the hostility in our hearts, Jesus. And so he comes. And when he comes into the room the second time, locked room again, they're still pretty fearful. Thomas is there, and we get this great, I know this isn't exactly how it happened, but this painting from Caravaggio is pretty epic, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. Because here's Thomas going, okay, it's really you in the flesh. It's really you. He not only is clothed in glory and power by his wounds, Isaiah 53, 5 says, it's by his wounds that we are healed. He's paid the price for you and I to be set free from our fears and doubts, our sorrows, our griefs. Not only does he have the power, he has the gentleness. He has the, the grace to come up close to you and to me and our fears and doubts and say, I'm right here. Here I am. Here's my hands. Here's my side. Father David reminded this to us on the Good Friday service that he's our great high priest. He is our great high priest. And I love what Hebrew says about this. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And he is able to save completely, including Thomas, including Brian, including you. He's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The risen Lord is personal. He calls us by name. He's offering his peace. He has the power to come in and to say, Thomas, I know you, I know what you're struggling with, and I'm bringing you my peace. Then, lastly, what we see here at the very end of this passage, we see him, the risen Lord, do something that's kind of strange. He breathes on them. It's personal. He's offering his peace, and then he does this mysterious, cosmic I've always kind of wondered, sorry, uh, side note, was it a, or a, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's, it's kind of unique, but I want to draw your attention to the beginning of creation. At the beginning of creation, Genesis 1 through 3 tells us God created the heaven and the earth. He creates mankind eventually, and nothing is alive in the sense of God alive resurrection alive. Nothing's alive in that way until one particular action by the creator, and you know, you know, some of you know what it is, God breathes into the first human, and all of a sudden, animation, there's life. Now, what happened when sin entered into the world? Adam and Eve died a spiritual death. There was a break in the unmediated presence of God, there was a break that occurred. So what in the world is Jesus doing here in John 20? Do you see it? The creator, the second person of the Trinity, is calling back to life all of creation, including in men and women like you and me. We are part of the new creation. And he breathes on them his very presence. You guys remember last week, if you weren't here, peekaboo. Peekaboo, what's happening in the life of this infant? This little infant that doesn't know, does dad still exist if he's behind his hands? I'm not sure. So it's a really fun game. But as that child begins to develop object permanence, 
Object permanence means you exist even when I can't see you, touch you, feel you. Jesus isn't playing games, but what he's doing is he's reestablishing object permanence. He's reestablishing this beautiful reality that God is not just kind of out there, but he's here. He begins to take up residence in the lungs, in the heart, in the souls of men and women again. This is new creation. This is what it means to be church of the resurrection. He breathes on them. Now, worth, worth, worth rich conversation is that this seems to be a little bit more like a dial than a switch. Uh, they still have to wait in Jerusalem. We still have about five weeks before we get to Pentecost Sunday together. They're still told to wait, but, but the dial is turning up and they're becoming aware that God is not just kind of with us in a physical sense when he's in the room, but he's, he's filling us. And so when we say, the Lord be with you, the Lord fill you, the Lord breathe on you, and this, this, this creates new life. The risen Lord's personal. He's calling us by name. He brings us peace. He's healing us by his wounds. And the risen Lord breathes on us, the, his very own presence. Now, this Easter season, we're going to see scene after scene of this early group of disciples, this first church of the resurrection, begin to wake up to the resurrection. And here's what they were tempted to do, and you and I are tempted to do it too, and we'll end on this. They were tempted to huddle. That's what they're doing, to huddle. They were huddling in their fear and their doubt. They were huddling actually with their own tribe. They were huddling with their own tribe. It takes Jesus breaking through not only their own fears and doubts, but their own tribalism, their own nationalism, to get the church on mission, Jesus has to break down major barriers. In fact, it takes visions to Peter to get him to go, oh, oh, everyone's invited. Jesus starts to break the huddle during this Eastertide season. And, and it requires an intervention, not only then, but now. What you and I are tempted to do as the church is we're tempted to think, gosh, it's so wonderful. It's for us. Look at what Jesus does for us. And you do need to delight in that. It needs to knock you off your feet, what he's done for you and for us. But at the end of the day, it's not just for us. It's not just for us. Look at verse 21 if you're in John chapter 20 and what Jesus says to them, just astounding. He says, my peace I give to you. Now the very next thing, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Whoa. What? Even up to Ascension Day, these apostles don't get it. They don't understand. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You're here now. You're resurrected. We get to keep you to ourselves. Let's set up our little kingdom. The church, the church that's following the risen Lord is a church that's not only experiencing all the joys of having him for us, but because of this, we now go. We now go out. We now take risk like they did. He breaks the huddle. How does he do that? Well, his presence is not just here when we gather. His presence is, is in here, in the community that he's 
called back to life that he's breathed into and he now sends us out on mission. Look at what he says at the very end of the chapter. These things have happened so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And once you have life, once you have this joy, you can't just huddle. You can't just keep it to yourself. It'd be like seeing the Grand Canyon alone. Hey, hey, look, wait a minute, nobody's here with me. When you enjoy something so grand in life, you've gotta, you've gotta bring those along with you that you love, that are near to you. My prayer for us, Church of the Resurrection, is that he would break us from our fear, from our doubts, that he would set us free from that prison, and that he would set us on mission in North Texas, here in Denton County, and show us, show us how to be the kind of people who would say, this, this Lord, this risen Lord, he's, he's for everyone. Everyone's invited to the table. And so, Heavenly Father, would you empower us? Would you breathe on us afresh? Lord, if you don't fill us, if you don't go with us, what's the point? But we know you want to. You want to be near to us. You come and you find us in our doubts and fears. Would you find each and every one, call them by name, and and raise them to new life in you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.